Good morning. You can have a seat. Clavi, <coughs> as you were praying, you reminded me of a story where a friend walked into church, and it was an Afrikaans church, and he sees they're celebrating like guns and grenades. And he's like, what on earth have I stepped into? This is like time of political divide and everything. And he's like, what is, wow, it's strange. Like they, they're celebrating like violence here. It's like, that's not right. And he's like, no, 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 it's chins and chinada. He just read it incorrectly. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But Like there's something about this, just the, the, the conflict of different languages and learning to build a community and a people of like diverse backgrounds. That's something of what we've been going through. We've been going through the letter to the Ephesians, which is a letter written to like the new church. And they're trying to understand how, how, to, how to walk together. Because they used to have a, a set way of life where they were the Jewish people, the Israelites. They were the called out people. They had their, their customs and their understanding and their way of life. And it was simple. But then God had broken in and Jesus had come and now it's the new church. And they, they're trying to understand how to relate. What, what is acceptable? What's not? Do we have to keep the Sabbath? Do we not? Do we have to tithe? Do we not? Do we, how do we actually do this? And then we're still asking those same questions. And part of the story that we've used to, to help us understand this is... The formation of Israel, where they're being set free from Egypt, where they were slaves. And now God's at Mount Sinai giving them the law. And he's saying, actually, I want you to be my people. I'm going to give you instructions on how to live. What's right? What's wrong? Showing you like, hey, we, we know the Ten Commandments, but then also how this like, affects our lives and how we learn to relate to each other. And we realize that actually, even though we've been set free from like the external oppression, we realize that that slavery is still inside of us. And this letter to the Ephesians is still talking to that same thing. Because all of us, like if we're honest, when we're confronted with hurt or pain or brokenness, or the example I used, I think it was last week, was in marriage when somebody hurts you, when your spouse hurts you, or when does something wrong, or in a close friendship, when you've really been hurt, that anger, that response, if you can't control your response, you're actually a slave to it. And we realize that there's elements of our life where actually we're still slaves to our like baser instincts. And it's like that kind of that dark side inside of us. You can even look at it just from a, a psychological perspective where psychologists have tried to analyze this, whether it's like Carl Jung and it's like integrating like the, your shadow side or trying to figure out that there's that dark side and that light side inside of all of us. Whether you're a Christian or not, people have identified that there's, there's good in humanity, but there's also like terrible evil. And that the understanding of that in Christianity is actually... We identify that darkness as our sin. And God wants to eradicate that and He wants to remove that. And He remove it, removes like the, the, the overarching like punishment for it. But He still wants to remove the reality of it from our daily life. And He wants to empower us and strengthen us to live in a way that we're not bound by that. We can actually live the life of virtue like we want to live. And that's what we heard last week where Paul is saying... 
Okay, in light of everything God has done for you, walk worthy. Walk this out in your daily life. Walk this out in your relationships. Walk this out in your workplace. Walk this out in your relationships. Walk this out in how you are a husband and a father and a mother and a wife. Learn to implement this and walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been called to be sons and daughters of God. Called to one hope, one faith, one body, one church. You're called to be the people of God. And now we are encouraged to walk worthy. And he carries on. Let's see, I've actually got it here. Okay. Let me actually read it off there. It's easier. Otherwise, I'm going to get distracted and I'm going to read different things. And so, now this I say and testify in the Lord. Testify is like implore you. I insist in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put off the falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I was chatting to Stephen before, and there's, a, there's an aspect in there. It says, be angry and do not sin. Because, I don't know about you, but when I'm confronted with sin, especially against me, I'm angry. When somebody hurts me, when somebody wrongs me, or maybe even worse, when somebody does something to somebody you love and they hurt them, or they steal from you, or they disrespect you, or it's like there's an anger that rises up inside of us. And he says, be angry and do not sin. Because there's something of a righteous anger that there's a frustration, there's a hurt. Like when we see the pain and the brokenness of the world, when we experience it, there's an anger and a frustration there. But our response generally comes with a backlash where we want to respond in anger and we want to respond with vengeance. And we call it justice and we call it righteousness. But actually, often, we're actually a slave to that response because we're responding just out of our hurt. But God wants to say, actually, I want to show you how to be angry at the sin, 
but so controlled in your response that you actually bring redemption and healing and you bring restoration, taking that hurt and that pain and that brokenness and letting it be used ultimately for good. But it's not always easy to connect those dots. But God wants to come and say, actually, I want you to be so empowered and strengthened by what I have done for you, by my spirit, that I want to renew your mind, renew your heart, renew your instincts, like your instincts, that actually your response, rather than vengeance, rather than I just want to get justice, I actually want to bring the biblical concept of justice is shalom. It's actually, I want to bring peace. I want to bring the end of all war. It's like the way you ultimately achieve victory and peace in the biblical concept is by winning over our enemies, not by defeating them. It's like ultimate peace is not at the, like, the end of a sword. Actually, peace is when we put down all of our swords and we've won over everybody to bow their knee before Christ. And the only way we do that is when we stand in like strength and courage in the complete opposite spirit. To actually not fight fire with fire just because we can, but actually to fight with love and to lay down like our lives. One example we've got of that in South Africa is actually Nelson Mandela. Where I was having a, a conversation with Kamo actually during this week. And there's a generation arising in South Africa that is very disappointed with what Mandela did. They believe he compromised and he actually he gave up too much of the rights that like, a large majority of our population believes they're entitled to of the land, of restoration, and we actually deserve this. And it's a complicated situation of how to actually resolve the problems in our country. But there's something of a dissatisfaction with the way that it's going. There's a dissatisfaction on a lot of fronts where it's like, actually, this is not the country we should have. And we should fix it in this way or that way. There's a, on the other side, we've got Christians rising up and saying, we are the majority. We should stand up and this nation should go the way we want it to go. And there's a tendency in that to actually start borrowing the ways of the world to say, our way is right. Everybody must submit to it. Rather than our way is right. Let me invite you into it. Let me show you what it's like. I'm going to lay down my rights for your benefit. I'm going to give up what I'm actually entitled to, to give you space to operate in a way I don't even like. But I'll support your ability to operate in that way freely. Anyway, politics can divide us and I can't solve it all. I don't know how to solve it all. But I do know that God is calling us to a radical Christ-like way of life that actually sets us apart so that we can bring healing and restoration. The reason I use Mandela as an example is because he became a, a radical example of forgiveness, of unity, of saying, I know there was pain in the past. I don't condone it. We actually bring it all into the light, the truth and reconciliation, saying this is the truth of what we've done. It is terrible. It is shocking. But let's reconcile and let's find a way to be a new South Africa and move forward. 
And we have to trust for that again and pray for that because I think there are spiritual forces that are trying to take advantage of our baser instincts on every side of the spectrum. Whether it's black, white, Christian, non-Christian, the enemy is trying to use us and our desires to divide and conquer. Whereas the way of Christ is actually to bring unity and love and peace so we can move forward. One famous example in literature of this is um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't know how familiar you guys are with the story, but if you've seen very, I don't know, popular levels of it, it's, it's like this picture of a man that drinks a potion and becomes like a monster at night. But that's not what actually happens in the, the actual book. Um, spoiler alert, it's been out for a long time. If you haven't read it by now, it's, I don't know, it's on, it's on you. But the whole desire in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is Dr. Jekyll was a man of virtue. He understood this tension that there's good inside of us and there's evil. And he, he just wanted to live the best life he possibly could. So he thought, you know what, if I could just design a potion that would allow me to be separated, that like my evil side would be over here and my good side would just be perfect. It's like, then I would be able to, as that perfect man, as that good side, I would be able to do so much good. And I won't be held back by my evil desires or my evil instincts. And there's this tension where he's trying to say, like, how do I separate this side of me? Because I understand there's a sinful side and I understand there's a good side. And he's like, I want to try and do it by this clever alchemy that I'm going to take this potion and I'm going to be separated. But what ends up happening is he, he separates the evil side of him that Mr. Hyde becomes this expression and this embodiment of his evil side. But he realizes Dr. Jekyll is still flawed. So in the daytime, he's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at night, basically. And then there becomes this wrestle between the two. And eventually, like Mr. Hyde becomes so powerful, he overpowers Dr. Jekyll. And he, he ends up like he can't control the transformation. But it's this incredible exploration of how do we deal with that dark side of us? How do we deal with the sin? How do we uproot it out of our lives and actually get rid of it? Because this is what Paul is trying to instruct us. He's trying to say, like, don't live in the way of the Gentiles. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This is not a thing of like, oh, the Jews are better versus the Gentiles. No, just the Gentile way was just the standard way of the world. So he's saying don't walk in the standard way that the rest of the world does. And he describes it as the futility of their minds. You think about that. Resistance is futile. Resistance is useless. Don't walk in a useless way of life. A meaningless way of life. I actually want your life to have meaning and purpose. I want you to live with an identity that is far greater than what the average person around you walks with. Not because you are just instinctively better, but because I have called you. And I've got a purpose for you. 
I've got a meaning for your life. And every action, every decision plays into that. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, or greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. He describes a, a, almost a pattern of how that meaningless way of life, what it leads to. And there's this amazing picture. If you look at it, it starts off with actually there's a futility. They darken in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because they are ignorant and their hearts have become hardened. And it's, it's a picture of almost um, in biblical like poetry there's almost this pattern where the futility and hardened kind of go together and darkened and ignorant go together because the point is actually you are alienated from the life of God. Where actually when we live in just the, the standard way of life, life becomes futile and our hearts become hardened because actually our understanding has become darkened. We've lost sight of what really matters. Because we actually, we are ignorant of just the life of God. God actually wants to use your mind. He wants to use your thinking. He wants to use your approach to Him to draw you closer to Him. Because the main problem is actually you are alienated. You have been left out. The, the way of life of the Gentiles, the standard way of the world, is lacking the power of the life of God. That is what we need to actually deal with that dark side of us. And that gives us strength to completely overpower it. That it is actually not like, so we can be fully who God's called us to be. So if you look at it, I can't help but think when we go through these things, I look at what is the opposite. If that is the way of like the life of the Gentiles, if that is the way of life that is just standard in the world, what is the way that leads to life? It's actually, it's a life of meaning. Being soft-hearted. Because the reality is when, I don't know, when last you were actually confronted with something that was wrong in you. When you've been confronted at work or in your marriage, or in a friendship of like, yes, you know what? How you responded there was wrong. No, no it wasn't. Actually, I, th I think that, that needs to be addressed. No, 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 that's just who I am. I'm just, I just speak the truth. It's like I'm somebody who, who stands for justice. Like, it's actually, we become hard-hearted because it's a defense mechanism. Because if you're showing me where I am weak, my... My identity is wrapped up in who I am. If you're criticizing me, I'm going to come out in defense. 
It's like generally we either, it's that fight or flight. Either I'm going to fight you or I'm going to run away from you. I might just like shelter in place and then I'm going to run away as soon as I can. Or I'll say whatever it takes to get me out of the conversation with somebody that's talking to me and addressing something broken. And then after that conversation, you're never going to see me again. Because it's easier to just avoid it. Because you've placed, put your finger on a nerve that I know to be true. But the way of life is actually humility. A soft-heartedness. To realize that despite everything, I can still learn more. Despite like all that I might know, God still wants to show me more. I was going to play a video, but I don't know if you've heard the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's, it's in psychology, it's, yeah, it comes from this strange story where um, a guy tried to rob a bank and he like it covered himself in lemon juice because lemon juice is used for like almost like secret ink. And he thought because he had lemon juice on his face, the cameras wouldn't be able to see him. So he got caught. And then they're like, and these psychologists decided to study this. And they're like, what, what happened here? And he, they realized that once you, it's basically it comes to a theory of how you understand information. As you grow in knowledge, when you first learn something, you become incredibly confident. That, man, I've got all the answers. It's literally, it's like first year syndrome when you're studying like adversity. I'm the expert in this. I know everything. I've just opened my Bible and I know something true here. I can tell everybody this is what it says. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Done. But then as you study more, you become a little bit uncertain because it's like, wow, that, that says that. But then there's other things that kind of contradict that. And so the Dunning-Kruger effect, basically it describes it that when you have a little bit of knowledge, you can seem incredibly confident. But as you learn a little bit more, you might seem more insecure. But actually it's because you know more, because you know what contradicts it. And then as you go further, you get to a place of like an expert where you can share your opinion, but you walk, share it with humility because you understand there's always more that you can learn. And God is asking us to actually walk humbly because it's not that we aren't confident in what he has shown us. We just understand that not everybody is in that same space as us. Not everybody has had the same experience as us. Not everybody has the same capacity as us. Not everybody has the privilege that you've had in your life. doesn't matter what it is. It may be your capacity to understand the Bible. It may be your parents. It may be the school that you went to. It may be the church that you went to. Whatever it is you've received actually allows you to walk with humility in the situation. Which helps us in all of this. So we see humility and meaning kind of go together. We're actually, as we realize God has revealed himself to us and there's more for us to learn, we understand that there is a meaning that we, the, the more we want to understand who God is, what life is about, how we walk, that comes through our revelation. We're actually, instead of being ignorant, God has revealed himself to us through his word, through Jesus, through those around us, which allows us to actually be enlightened rather than darkened in our understanding. We step by step get enlightened upon the, like the, the way that leads to life, to God. 
This brings us to actually, rather than being alienated from the life of God, it brings us into intimacy with God as our Father. And the consequences of this, they actually become callous. Think of the calluses when you go to like gym. When you go through hard things, at places like a calluses there, or when you go running, these calluses can form in a certain spot. What that, that leads to a hardness and a desensitization of what should be there. Then they are given over to sensuality and like just they are slaves to their feelings. It's like, what does the world say at the moment now? This is right. No, but this feels right to me. No, but that doesn't make sense. No, but it feels right to me. There's been a, 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 like a serious like pendulum swing to try and like overcompensate for where there may have been like strict things in place or strict rules in place. And there's been an overcorrection to our personal feelings like trumping our, the truth. And they're greedy for impurity. There's an aspect of us, like actually as we give in to our baser instincts, that becomes like a greed that's insatiable, that actually we just want to practice what we feel like we want to do. But the opposite is actually we want to be tender-hearted. That instead of that callousness, God wants to bring the correct, true sensitivity that should be there. Aware of those that are around us. Aware of what is actually happening. Because that callousness, you understand it, like a callous on your foot or something. It's like it, it numbs the pain that should be there. But that sensitivity is so that we can actually understand and we can respond appropriately. This is like it's a picture of actually a callousness on our heart. God actually wants to come and give us a soft heart, a new heart. So that we can respond appropriately. doesn't matter what the situation we are in. Then instead of being slaves to our sensuality, just to our feelings, we can actually be controlled by virtue. And not just a virtue that is placed upon us, but actually a virtue of the Spirit. Because as we have been revealed and enlightened and God is showing us what it means to actually live a life of meaning and purpose in the Spirit, we actually start being controlled by that nature. And then not only controlled by it, we actually become generous. So instead of greedy, we become generous to practice purity. This might seem like, okay, this is really difficult to actually implement or like, how do we do this? And one of the examples I thought of is the movie Avatar, where... I haven't seen the new one, so. But there's a, there's a picture of Avatar where it's like you actually go and you embody yourself in somebody else. Where the whole story is, is actually the, um, I don't even know what the character's name is. He, he gets placed inside a completely different body. And he puts on this form so he can identify with Navi. And he goes and he... He relates to a completely different way of life. And he gets exposed to this world and he starts to love it. And he gets transformed in his very nature that it wants to actually change who he is. And this is what Paul is saying. is actually put on the new self. Let your mind be renewed. Let yourself be renewed. Let it transform 
every part of you. Like a, it's almost like a set of clothing, where, but it's so much deeper than that, where it's actually put on a whole new identity. You have been transformed. You are not who you used to be. You don't have to be controlled by what you used to be controlled by. I am making you completely new. And I want you to be made new. And the reason we can actually do this is because that's exactly what Jesus did. Just in reverse. He put on flesh. He was perfect, yet he put on humanity to understand exactly what we go through. To be tempted in every way that we were tempted. To show us that actually, even when you are tempted, you can withstand. Empowered by the Spirit, you can live a different life. The whole reason that Jesus came, it's like we often think of it that it's like, yeah, but he was God, so he could always be perfect because he was just God. No, the whole point is that he laid aside his like God attributes to actually come and embody what it can be like empowered by the Spirit. He came to identify with us in every way so that we can see and have a vision and an understanding of what it's like to be empowered by the Spirit in human form. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. It's like in the case of that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where he was looking, like, what is the potion? What is it that can come and actually deal with my brokenness, deal with my sin, deal with that aspect of my life? The potion is actually Jesus' blood. And his body. Because that is the only thing that can actually come and truly separate us. He came so that we can have an example. But not only the example. He came so that he could actually he descend. Like we heard last week. He descended into the lower regions, the earth. So that he could be raised up. So that he could fill everything by the power of his spirit. So that we can be renewed in the spirit of our mind. So that our minds can be transformed and renewed. So that our instincts, so that our natural desires is transformed. After his desires. Be imitators of God and walk in love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We are invited, just like that, to be imitators of God. To imitate Christ in how he laid down his life for us. We get to lay down our lives for our families, for our friends. But greater than that, he, he calls us to a greater purpose. That it's not just about you. It's not just about your family. He's calling you to greatness. To actually lay down your life and your inner desires and your instincts for the greater good so that those desires are transformed as we meditate on that story on the truth of who Christ is and what he has done I don't know if you know that the story of Christ is transforming the world not just 
in Christians. It's like there are many non-Christians that are looking at Christ, looking at Jesus and the story of Jesus. And they're saying, I don't know if I can believe that somebody could be resurrected. I don't know if I believe this, but I'm so compelled by this story. I want to live it out. How much more should we be able to do that when we know that it is actually the truth? It is not just the story. It is the best story. It is the ultimate archetypical hero story of somebody drawn into a fight that is far bigger than them. Laying down his life, not just for his friends, but actually for his enemies so that they could be restored and healed and made whole. It is the ultimate story of sacrifice. And it is true. Lord, help us to remember this. Help us to be compelled by it. We love you. We say thank you for what you have done. Help us to put on this new self. We might feel drawn to it and compelled by you. But we don't know how to work it out. We don't know how to walk it out. Thank you that you say, actually, I'm going to come and strengthen you. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to lead you into all truth. It doesn't say you have to run. It doesn't say you have to like fly into this. It says walk it out. It comes with just strength and balance. You ask us to take one step at a time. You are teaching us and training us. One step at a time to be the fathers that we're called to be. The husbands that we're called to be. The wives we are called to be. The men and women of God. The people of God. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. In Jesus' name. Amen.